Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Show. And this, I think, is going to be a very fun episode because our main topic this month is our Doctor Who Guilty Pleasures. So I know I'm looking forward to that conversation. Rob, how are you? Yeah, Dave, I am I'm doing well. I'm I'm so busy in real life, but when it comes to sitting down and doing the podcast, I, I I can just block all of that out and just be really excited about what we're going to do because yes, we try and do fun episodes every month, but I think this is a particularly fun topic to be talking about. Yeah, I think so. I've got a lot to say on that one, a lot to say on some of our other mini topics and news items as well. So uh, yeah, that's all very good. I mean, we, we are in that real lull period right now where we're a long way now from the last series. Mm. We haven't really started to get all that news and build up for the new series yet. We haven't had a first sort of teaser trailer. We haven't got detailed episode breakdowns. That's all going to start flowing, I think, in the not-too-distant future. But for the moment, it's very quiet. Even set photos have been thin on the ground. I know some people go, oh, spoilers, don't want to see them. But, you know, it's part of the... (laughs) It's part of the biz when you're on Twitter and you're looking at people talking about Doctor Who. They pop up with regularity normally, but at the moment I'm not even seeing many of those. I don't know whether they've gone into the studio and they're hiding away from the world at present or what's going on. Yeah, or even those early announcements where, for example, they know they're filming with a Zygon. So before people see Zygons walking around the countryside, they say, okay, everyone, here's a Zygon. Mm, Exactly. Exactly, yeah, it's just, it's deathly quiet. But that's kind of exciting, actually. It is the calm before the storm, I think, because let's face it, when we get to the next season, it's going to be big. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> I don't want to preempt it, though, you know? I mean, we're, we're, of course we're excited about it, of course we have thoughts on what might happen, but I'm trying to just play it cool at the moment, if that makes sense, because <laughs> I just don't want to over-egg the pudding. I want it to just wash over me. It, it makes absolute sense, but... You and I both know, I mean, we all know that the pre-publicity and the the attention and the spotlight on the next season of Doctor Who is going to be bigger than we've seen for a long time. Oh, absolutely. New logo, new theme music, new composer, new doctor, female doctor, uh, multiple companions. Every Everything has changed. New showrunner. New, new showrunner, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But although we haven't got any news on the new series, we have got a couple of items. Now... One that caught my eye was an item in the Radio Times mm-hmm. where it was talking about the fact that David Tennant almost played Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> really, Dave? Yeah, now, not in the movies, but on, on on a TV show that didn't last that long, so he probably did do quite well not getting this part. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think it's a very interesting one, not so much because of the, the, the show itself and you know, the fact he didn't get the part, but the fact that Tennant was very actively pursuing this he had meetings with the producer and it just indicates this real path that Tennant's going down where he's looking for those really meaty dramatic television roles Mm. even though he wasn't the star of Hannibal he was looking for a Hannibal Lecter type part and you look at what he's done on stuff like Jessica Jones for example you look at what Mm. he did on Broadchurch Uh, he's really trying to carve himself this niche as a character actor, particularly a, a bit of a baddie, which I think is very smart because his early career was very much the, the dashing, handsome young lead. Oh, absolutely. The problem with that is that it can be very lucrative for about five to ten years. But when you're no longer dashing and young and a little, you know, 
less conventionally handsome, shall we say, or TV handsome. A little worn around the edges, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's harsh, but that's a TV reality. Mm. If you haven't changed your career, you suddenly are no, no longer of interest. And I think you can really see tenants laying the groundwork for a really successful long-term career here. And, and I think perhaps better than a couple of other doctors, both new and old. Yeah, he's certainly going in for the tortured vibe, you know, whether it's a, a bad guy who's a bit tortured or even on, on Broadchurch, you know, he's he's a good guy, he's trying to do good, but he's still tortured. He's not the fun-loving, jokey kind of, you know, doctor-type character anymore. Well, no, and I remember the first time I ever saw Tennant on television was in a was in an episode of The Bill where he played a, a murderer and a really, a really psychotic murderer. He was very, very young and his performance in that was particularly memorable and I've gone back and watched the episode a few times in recent years since it was on iTunes but in that he plays this guy that starts off as no no I'm innocent and then slowly these layers unpeel over the course of the episode until you get to this really crazy mad murderer and he was brilliant in that so he's kind of always had it but yeah, I'm really you know, pleased for Tennant that he's doing these sort of things. Mm, you've just reminded me, actually. Did you ever see uh, the Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer reboot of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased? I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it, no. Tennant's in one of those episodes, and he's a bit unhinged in that. That's all I'll say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's very interesting stuff. Um, moving along, uh, news is thin on the ground this month, so this will only be our second and final news story. From a bit closer to home, perthnow.com.au uh, has been reporting on Peter Capaldi, who's recently been in the country, and I think you'll have more to say on that in a moment, Dave. And they got him talking about, you know, what it's been like enjoying life basically after doctor who and capaldi's just flat out said you know it was four years on doctor who now i'm just resting i'm playing my guitar i'm going out for breakfast you know i feel slightly guilty to say it but i'm enjoying it um <laughs> and he, he says you know doctor who is a great show and experience but to be at the center of that brand is a lot of work it's it's a lot more than just acting it's hard to maintain that level of commitment I get the feeling the part might have really beat him down, even though it was the part he wanted to play all his life since he was a little kid. Once he got it, I think he realised, gee, this really is hard work. I think it really beat him down, Dave, and that's why he didn't do another series. Everybody who works on the new show talks about how punishing the schedules are, and I don't think that he was any different in that. Yeah, Look, at his age, I mean, he took on the role at 55, which I think, was, wasn't that the same age as Hartnell? Uh, within a year or two, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's taken him through, he's, he's finished the role now and he's just turned 60. You know, it's, it's five years of your life in your 50s, half of that decade. That's a significant portion of your life to give away at a particular time of life. Um, you know, hats off to him. Yeah, no, totally understand that. And he's, uh, he doesn't need to work out what he's doing next in his career. He could, he could happily retire now, I suspect. Oh, I think so. I think so. And maybe just do pop culture conventions, Dave, if that's a good segue. <laughs> that's not a bad one. So, Rob, last time I said I was going to go to a convention. Yes, I was very surprised to hear this. Well, I can now tell you that I have been to a convention, mm -hmm. but I'm very sorry to say it is comfortably the worst Doctor Who convention I've been to in my lifetime, and that includes Survival 94, where the organiser forgot to book the guest. <laughs> now, Dave, to be fair, this wasn't specifically a Doctor Who convention, though. Uh, no, it wasn't. So it was one of those large mass Comic-Con-type conventions. That's called Supernova, and they operate in Australia, and they do two or three cities at a time. 
it wasn't a Doctor Who convention per se, but it was definitely hinged off Doctor Who fandom this time in that Peter Capaldi, John Barrowman and Pearl Mackey were the headline guests and headlined by quite quite a uh, quite a length, I think. Yeah, different supernovas over the years tend to string together a few of the big guests, so they they do attract a certain fandom. I've I've been to ones in the past, for example, that had several of the original Battlestar Galactica cast members. For example, they had Starbuck and Apollo. I mean, God, Richard Hatch when he was still alive, um, and and Boomer and so on. You know, so that they try and do that sort of themed thing, but it's not specifically about one show either. No, no, and there are there are other guests there as well that I'll, I'll mention later on. I mentioned it being the worst convention I've been to. That is, in some ways, fair and in some ways not fair. There there were positives that I will talk about in a moment, and there were positives. But this was the epitome of the overexposed, over-commercialized, oversold, exploitative fan event. There were literally thousands of people there, and it was run in a way that I think just lacked any heart and soul. I've been to conventions that are similar and are professionally run in that, and I use it in the the technical sense of being run by an organisation for profit. Uh, For example, when I saw Terence Dix and Matthew Waterhouse and Jeffrey Beavers um, a few years ago, that was a really nice con. Mm. Uh, Even though it was done professionally and you paid and all the rest of it, it was a really nice event. I really had a nice time. Let me emphasise as well, I'm not worried about the money. I, I totally accept that if you're going to get Capaldi and Barrowman and Mackey, all of whom are high-profile names, all of whom you know could be earning money very, very... Well, could be earning a lot of money uh, elsewhere, and if you need to sort of have that limitation on how many autographs and photos they do, I get you've got to price it at a certain level. I'm very yeah. comfortable with that. I accept that. But I do expect to get some value for that price. Mm. So my experience on the day, it took me 40 minutes to drive to the location and another 40 minutes to park. Wow. Which just sort of shows just how big this thing was. There were thousands of people there. When they sold the autograph and photo tokens, the autographs particularly were done by a time. So you bought a particular time slot. The assumption I made was that, therefore, they would sell exactly enough tickets for that time slot to be very manageable. And that's how they were limiting things. Mm. When I got there, so my first autograph that I'd paid for was John Barrowman's at 11.30. I got there at 11.30 and already the queue was like hundreds deep. Hundreds deep. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I don't think anyone was checking to see what time people had their tickets for. And people were just sort of joining the queue and whatever. Um, And I I was, you know, quite a a way back. The other thing was, again, I don't mind organisers selling, you know, special gold Gallifrey passes or whatever you want to call them. Uh, in mm. this case, they were selling these passes for upwards of $700. Yeah, Supernova gets pretty pricey. That guarantees you front row seats to all of the panels and inv- guarantees that you're going to get, you know, cut the line for autographs and photos. And I think, you know, you get to touch the celebrity or something. I don't know. You know. <laughs> there's, a, there's a VIP party on the Saturday nights. Uh, for full disclosure, Dave, I've had a couple of VIP tickets to Supernova. I didn't pay for them, though. It was when I worked for a um, an entertainment company back in the day, and um, I was there as a guest of Supernova. So I I, I know how these things go on, and um, gee, VIP is a nice thing though. Oh look, and I, again, <laughs> I totally get that that's that's a way to make make money and to differentiate different people. But usually, when they've had those sort of passes, they've had their own sessions. 
So there's yes. been a gold autograph session and a gold photo session. Usually first thing, they're put through and it's sort of, you know, everybody else go and do something else. We'll deal with all our gold passes. Then we'll sort of get to the masses. Yeah, because often the gold passes in terms of photos have all the guests together and it's very rare for them to actually get together for photos on the day. It's usually just for the gold pass people, yeah. for example. Yeah, The way it was working here, certainly with the autographs, was the gold passes could buy their tickets for any autograph session, but they simply jumped to the front of the queue. That's right, yeah. So if you're in a queue that's, say, 150 people deep and then 10 gold pass people rock up, that queue doesn't move for another 10 minutes while those people go to the front of the queue, mm-hmm. which yep. is very, very frustrating. It, yep. And it got to the point where after sort of being, being in this line for nearly an hour and having not really moved that far, the one of the organisers came up and said, now just bear in mind that at some point John's going to have to go and have his break and have his lunch. So, you know, we're not sure if he'll do all of the line now. And I said, well, hang on, I paid for an 11 to 30 ticket. Mm. Oh, well, you know, you can always come back at the one thirty session. <laughs> which which means I'm then competing with everyone who didn't get in this one and all of the 130 people. Oh, well, yeah, what can you do? And I was like, no, no I've, I've, I've paid <laughs> wow. money for this, for this session. So it, it really was like that. Did you get the sense that they were putting times on them as more of a suggestion as when you should line up as to, as you say, they weren't actually checking this. They were just maybe trusting people that only the 1130 people would be lining up. Yeah, very, very much so. And definitely oversold. Like they, I'm sure they sold more autographs than they really, really should have. At the same time, a friend of mine uh, sent me a message because the Capaldi Mackey panel was on at 12.30. He was wandering around the convention about an hour and a half before that and saw that the queue to get into that panel was already several hundred people deep. Mm. So he joined the queue, and the queue was in the sun. So there were people who spent two hours in the sun lining up to try and get into the panel. The one single 50-minute panel that Capaldi and Mackie did together. Mm. So, you know, I missed the start of that because I was still trying to get John Barrowman's autograph, and which, which I eventually got, and I'll come to that because that was a positive. When I got to the venue where the panel was, I was told it was full. They couldn't, couldn't let anybody else in. I sort of watched and saw that what they were doing was as somebody walked out, they let someone else in, nightclub style. So I kind yeah. of, you know, made myself known and you know, hassled them a bit. And when someone came out, I go, oh, can I have their spot? Oh, I have their spot. And <laughs> we, we were packed into this this shed, and, yeah. and it was at the race. It was at the race course. So it was, sorry, it was at the showgrounds. So it's this sort of big metal shent Ted thing mm. in an Australian, you know, warm weekend, and it was hot and it stank and it was just an unpleasant thing and there was only seating for about a third of the people in there everyone else was sort of standing packed into this thing and you could see Capaldi and Mackie at the back you know very very tiny it wasn't a fun thing to experience as I said they're only on stage for 50 minutes across the whole weekend wow that's not much it's not much and particularly you know because Capaldi got the lion's share of the question so we really only got like a third of an hour with with Pearl and I know people who bought a pass for the Sunday, thinking, oh, well, they're hanging it off these guys. There'll be a panel at least one on each day. And there was none on the Sunday. So people were very disappointed by that. Um, I then went and joined the queue for the Capaldi autograph. That was in that for about an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I went and saw John Barrowman's thing. Again, I arrived early. I still didn't get a seat. Um, and I was told I wasn't allowed to sit down on the ground either, despite the fact I'd been walking around or standing for several hours by then. I had to leave the Barrowman panel early to make sure I was reasonably close to the line of Pearl Mackey's final cue. So, you know, I wasn't getting 
a great experience here. I wasn't really seeing what I wanted to come for. And I spent something like five or six hours standing in queues to get three autographs. Mm. So yeah. that that's the negative. I, I don't mind them charging me money. I don't mind them having a big thing. But if you're going to sell these literally hundreds and hundreds of autographs, you've got to have a way to manage it that isn't people standing in queues for hours. And that frankly isn't a 60-year-old man standing at a signing bench just churning through hundreds and hundreds of autographs in a session. Yeah, yeah, no, that that doesn't sound like a good experience uh, at all, Dave. But it it sounds like you might have actually enjoyed it when you got to the the people signing your stuff. So maybe we could talk about that as well. You know, what was it like meeting John Barrowman first, for example? Yeah, look, John Barrowman, I think, you know, to his credit, he was really trying to make it all work. And he was really trying, despite the pressure of the queue, to ensure everyone got a moment. So, you know, I got my moment with John Barrowman and he signed my book and he said hello and... You know, he asked which series I was particularly a fan of. I said, oh, look, Doctor Who, but I've liked you in a lot of stuff and particularly like his show work, and he was really happy about that. So we got to, you know, got to have our 30 seconds together. So that, that was nice. Peter Capaldi, again, I chatted to him for, you know, my, my 30 seconds about um, politics more than anything. I said, you know, I've, I work in politics. And I know a lot of people who, you know, try to be like Malcolm Tucker. And he said, oh, I bet none of them are as good as the original, are they? I said, no, no, they're not. And, <laughs> So that was good. And the other really nice thing about Capaldi is that we were told very clearly Capaldi will not personalise anything unless you're a Gold Pass member. It's just put your thing in front of him, get the squiggle, get out. But what I found out was he did it for myself and a couple of friends. If you presented something like a book or a DVD cover or whatever that already had autographs on them from other people that said to David or to Mark or to Todd, he copied that and did it personalised anyway, which he you know, wasn't obliged to do, but he did make the effort. So... That's really nice to hear. Yeah, so that was really nice. And Pearl Mackey was really pleasant. And I think she's still like just stunned at how much people loved her performance and what a big deal it was to people. So that that was nice. Uh, the panels themselves weren't too bad. Uh, again, they were short. Um, they had the usual good and bad questions. And please, anyone listening, if you've got Capaldi on stage <laughs> for 50 minutes, don't ask him if he's had Vegemite. We don't care. Yeah. <laughs> And let me guess, someone else said, what's your favourite episode? Or do you like the Daleks? Or, or just some other inane question like that? Was there anything like that? There are a couple like that, but that's all right. He handled them very well. It, it was really clear what everybody who's met Capaldi before says about him, that he is a hugely charismatic and lovely personality. And that comes across even just seeing him on the big screen up the back. There, there are a couple of answers that he gave that were really interesting. One was about his directing. And he made the point that his time as a director had really helped him to understand that just because an actor feels that a particular takes the best one or they're building towards a better take, often that isn't how it translates on camera. And as a director, he's actually learned that you need to trust the director more when you're the actor. And that that was a really important experience for him. Mm. Uh, There was also a lovely little bit where somebody said, I couldn't quite hear the question, but something like, did you ever disagree with Stephen Moffat? Ooh. And he said, look, there was one time when I really disagreed with him because I read this script and it had the doctor riding out on a tank playing the guitar. <laughs> and I just thought, this is stupid. What? What? How does that work? What, that, we can't do this. This is, this is insane. And I thought it was going to be one of those anecdotes that finished with, of course, we did it and I turned out to be not too bad and Stephen was right. But it just finished with, so yeah, I lost that one. Wow. <laughs> So that, that was good. Uh, Pearl spoke very well. Uh, she particularly spoke about 
filming Oxygen, how that was her favourite episode to have filmed because it was so tough for her. She had so many scenes back to back, you know, in the suit, out of the suit, in the makeup, mm. in different sort of states that she had to act in. And she said that was a really good experience for her as an actress and she thought it really paid off. And we said at the time you know, how great she was in that episode. So Good episode in general too. Very underrated, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that was really nice to hear that, um, you know, all, all the other stuff. Barrowman did much more of a sort of a cabaret set. He came out wearing a um, TARDIS pattern sort of dress miniskirt thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, his his stuff was very out there. It was very adult, very sexual, very, very much bad language. Mm-hmm. So don't know how some of the younger kids in the audience uh, would have found that. Um, it's that nice Captain Jack. <laughs> yeah, so oh, he was dear. he was doing all this stuff, you know, and making jokes. He's talking about his his uh, birthday party and how uh, Steve Amell, who's his co-star on Arrow, came out and brought the birthday cake out wearing you know gold speedos and you know all that sort of thing. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> he did that. Um, he took a few questions they, and, and it was really good. And yeah, very good with a lot of the younger members of the audience. One particular thing I do have to mention as my final part on that is uh, there was one moment where Peter Capaldi had a question from a kid who must have been about six, if not less, all dressed up in the Doctor's costume with his own sonic screwdriver. And Peter Capaldi invited him up on stage, stood next to him and said, right, look out to everybody and say, I am the Doctor. And the kid did it and Capaldi gave him a big sort of, you know, not, not a hug, but a real sort of pat on the back and said, you know, well done, mate. And, you know, just that, that kid will remember that forever. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if that was you? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, those moments made it a really nice experience, except for the fact that they would, you know, tiny moments crammed between hours of queuing and parking and all the rest of that. I saw a lot of friends I haven't seen for a while. Uh, It was good to catch up with Todd from Flight Through Entirety, who'd come down from Sydney. Oh, good one, Todd. We we were both in the Peter Capaldi queue together, and so we'd sort of pass each other every 10 minutes as the line sort of went around. (laughs) And, And I need to note, because... Although a number of people I saw had the same experience as me, there were many hundreds of people who just loved being there. They yeah. loved being at a fan event. They loved the, you know, dressing up, seeing others who dressed up, walking around, seeing the merchandise and the stalls and the artists. And they didn't care about the cues. They didn't care about anything else. They were just engrossed in this, this really raw fandom and they loved it. So maybe I'm just a bitter old soul. I don't know, but... I was disappointed by the way it was organised, but I got some good moments. I got some autographs. So that's modern conventions. But I will just say uh, I listened last week to the recent Diddly Dum podcast where they mm-hmm. talk about the planning for the next DWAS Capital Convention and how they're trying to go back to that old school thing where you have time to meet the guests and the guests are on stage and it's really low key and they don't sell too many tickets and it's all done for charity. And I just thought... Jesus, I'm jealous of you guys. <laughs> yeah, and we should say this episode drops. When this episode drops, it'll be uh, Sunday morning in the UK on, on the second day of that convention, if it's a Saturday-Sunday event. And uh, Diddly Dumb, of course, is doing um, a number of podcasts from the event, talking to guests and so on. Not their usual podcast fare. They'll be bashing out quick interview-type podcasts, as far as I know. So if you're into that kind of thing, look up Diddly Dumb. And uh, this weekend, there'll be lots and lots dropping on their feed, hopefully. Yeah, I, I certainly recommend that. And, and indeed, including their last episode called Jordan's Alive, which <laughs> does all the lead up and does include the fact that they were in negotiations for Peter Capaldi to attend 
up for charity until he was offered a dump truck of money by someone in Australia to come out to our con. So mm. they, they missed out on him. We got to see him. Well, we finally got something over the UK, Dave, there. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't happen that often. Let's keep talking, Peter Capaldi, because I've got his autograph too this week, Dave, and I didn't have to line up for it. How did you do that? Well, it's a long story. It's... <laughs> It starts in July last year. Uh, I think as Jody was being announced, I'm sure it was around July, and Pete was on his way out, I thought it's time to write to Peter and say thank you for your time. It's time to write to Jody and say um, welcome aboard. And so I went off and uh, popped a letter separately to both of them through United Agents uh, over in London. And I waited and I waited and I waited. Um, and I'd done all the right things here. United Agents are their agents and they do take fan mail. And I popped a couple of international reply coupons into each of these letters. You know, that's always a good thing. If you can't send a stamp self-addressed envelope because it's an overseas thing, you should send an, an international reply coupon or IRC. Mm, yep. I'd done all of that. And I heard nothing month after month after month after month. And 2017 turned into 2018. And here we are. And it's halfway through April. And something popped into my letterbox. Oh. And it was from... And I'll, I'll just pull this out because I've got it in front of me. It was from the Peggy Thompson office. Business management and accounts administration. Uh, they're in Kew in Surrey. And I thought, what the hell's this? Have I Am I being sued by somebody? Is... <laughs> I said something <laughs> wrong on the podcast. What's what? Why am I being contacted by these people? And I cracked it open. It was a little letter from them saying, "Oh, you know, you've written to Peter Capaldi. He's very busy. Um, we've passed the letter on. Uh, here's a here's an autograph. He's pre-signed. So it's not to Rob. It's uh, basically the the standard BBC not for sale uh, postcard mm-hmm. um, that he has signed. Um, it's a real signature because I've seen a number of these postcards online, and the signatures are all different. And some some of them he's sketched on, and some of them he hasn't. Um, unfortunately, he hasn't sketched on mine. Uh, but I do know <laughs> it's a, it's a real autograph. Yeah, uh, it's nice through Capaldi and I've actually thrown it out on social media and had a few other people come back and say oh yeah I've had a letter from from the Peggy Thompson office as well so it seems that United Agents have passed this on to the Peggy Thompson office I don't know whether they passed it on last August and it's taken that long for Peggy Thompson to come back to me or whether maybe they held on to it for a long time and have only recently given it to the Peggy Thompson office either way I've got Capaldi's autograph in the mail it's not quite the same as when I wrote to Sophie Aldred as a you know starry-eyed 13 year old <laughs> or whatever it was and got like an actual letter from her back and all of that it's, it's not like that but oh, it's a nice thing I've got the doctor's autograph you know on a nice postcard it's a fun thing that is really nice. Can I ask, Rob, if you had an opportunity to go and buy an autograph from Capaldi in person, would, would you feel that that would be a better thing, that you would go and do it, you would, you would supplement your postcard for a personalised one where you met him, or do you feel you've got it now and that's enough? I feel I've got something. You know, I feel I'm sort of like halfway there with what I've got. But, of course, the actual meeting, looking them in the eye and saying a word or two, is what I think really seals the deal. Mm. Um, you know, an autograph where it's basically the same autograph, but he's just written to Rob at the top, that, that's a little nicer, but I think it's the actual meeting the person. You know, I, I almost think sometimes I don't even need an autograph or a selfie from people like that. It's almost just the talking to them that's the important part. Yeah. For example, I've met Russell Crowe once, and although I did get his autograph and I have it here, I... 
I was sort of standing toe to toe with him and talking to him. And this was many years back. He still was, you know, younger and fitter than he is today. Um, you know, he's got a big bushy white Santa beard at present. He, he looks very <laughs> old. Um, he looked he looked more like Maximus. And I was just looking at him thinking, good God, it's, it's, it's the general, you know, <laughs> it's the general from Gladiator. <laughs> this is really wild. This is amazing. And even if I hadn't got his autograph, I'll, I'll still remember talking to him, looking him in the eye, toe to toe, you know, two big buffy blokes, you know, having a chat. And I think that's where it's at for me, the actual, the interaction, even if it is only 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think the autographs are nice, but the interaction is important. And indeed, that, that supernova, uh, Tom Welling and Michael Rosenbaum from Smallville, plus uh, Alan Tudich from Firefly were all there. Mm. And I wasn't going to pay for an autograph for them because I'd already spent enough money, but there were some moments at the end of the day where their cues were pretty small or, or non-existent and I was able to sort of wander over and see them chatting with fans and I shook Tom Welling's hand so you know that, that was that was nice and I don't have an autograph to prove it but that's okay I've, I can say I've met them yeah yeah you don't need it you've you've done that and of course there are there are cases where I've got Doctor Who autographs here that I've sourced through companies like 10th Planet Events in the UK simply because I will never meet the people involved. They're, they're, they're too old to be travelling out to sure, Australia sure, yeah. or, or they're too niche to be coming out. In fact, I've, I've ordered one just recently. I've ordered a Peter Purvis um, signature because I, I don't think he'll be popping out here anytime soon. Um, and he'll dedicate that to Rob. And, you know, so I'll have an autograph to Rob from Peter Purvis. But it's not like I've met him. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, it's, it's a halfway thing for me. It, it is his autograph. It'll be on a lovely photo. But it's not quite the same. No, I understand. Now, moving away in part from Capaldi, but not entirely, mm-hmm. we've both had some similar mail this week. We have the new Target novels um, have popped into our letterbox this week, and I am delighted with mine. How about you? Absolutely the same. They look lovely. They feel lovely. They smell lovely. They're, they're very, very old school. I'm glad you said smell because it was one of the first things I did was actually smell the not the spine but the inner the inner bit you know or flick the pages past my nose and I thought this smells like the books used to smell back in like 1987 when I'd go to the bookstore you know that yeah. that cheap paper and ink smell oh my god <laughs> yeah no they're they're very lovely um mine only arrived two days ago because I did buy them uh, locally which meant there was a longer wait but I paid literally half the price. Mm. as you know getting them mailed out from the uk would be so i haven't had a chance to read them all the way through any of them but i've dipped in and looked at a few pages or a few key scenes or chapters here and there and they are very lovely written and i look forward to actually reading them over the next month and maybe we'll have a more in-depth talk about a couple of them on our next episode yeah i'm i'm very much the same i started flicking through rows and the start of it, you know, Russell T. Davis has started writing about Wilson, that character who we'd never even saw on screen, where Rose is creeping around in the basement saying, Wilson, you got the lottery money and, and all and all that. There's a whole backstory for Wilson and how he's been embezzling money. That's <laughs> like very this, Malcolm Hulk, isn't it? Yeah, it's like this whole other sort of world that's going on. Yeah. And I just want to mention to anyone out there who who might not listen to the Graham Norton podcast, he obviously does a radio show as well as his TV show, and there's a podcast at the radio show. He recently had um, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis on as his guests, 
And not only that, they were talking about the Target novels. So, I, I, as I said on Twitter, I've now heard Graham Norton say the words Target novels. I've heard Graham Norton mention River Song on Big Finish. I, I'm just like, what's going on here? I never thought I'd hear Graham Norton say these words at all. And he does this whole big interview about the new Target novels with, uh, with Moffat and Russell. That's very cool. I'll have to check them out. The, the one thing that I will say, though, on a slightly more downer note, is that whilst... I'm sure that, like mine, your social media feed has been full of fans of our vintage who have absolutely loved these books. Mm. We've all rushed out to buy them. They've all posted photos of them. They're really enjoying them. I did see some comments from uh, Milk Publishing on Twitter where they said that they'd only sold two copies in their shop and that whilst old fans love them, there's been no interest from new fans or the younger generation. And as somebody did point out, if you don't have a love of the Target novel and you can buy the DVD... Why would you buy a novelization? Mm. Yeah, it's very much a merchandise type thing. Although I would say, you know, a lot of people buy stuff online. So maybe just people aren't coming into their store to buy it. They're just going online and saying, I'll have that one, that one, that one, that one, and that one, those five books. And they're just buying them that way. Maybe. I hope so. And I hope we'll hear some news about how they've sold fairly soon. Hopefully they will have sold enough to do another set. Yeah, I get the feeling from both Moffat and, and Russell that they don't particularly want to actually write anymore, but I think they're quite open to other people doing their stories. For example, you know, Paul Cornell's already done one of Stephen's stories in this recent run. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see Gareth Roberts do one of his stories, for example. Oh, wouldn't that be good? That'd be pretty cool. Mm. Moving away from cool, it's yes. time for Trial Watch. <laughs> hey, hashtag Trial Watch. <laughs> so I've now finished episodes five through to eight. And, Rob, these were a slog. Yeah, I thought they might be. Tell us more, Dave. (laughs) Look, I will say that they look great, and there's some interesting ideas in there, but they are nasty. Nicola, or Perry, I should say, is treated so badly, including by the Doctor. There's a really, really horrible scene in Part 5 where Nicola just says, I'm scared, I don't like this place, I don't like Syl, I want to go. And the Doctor is so dismissive of her and so callous. Then you get all the stuff with the Doctor, you know, when he's under the influence of the machine and he's being a bastard. Mm. And Colin just looks uncomfortable. He doesn't know how to play it. Clearly no one's given him direction. Uh, it's, it's, it's all unpleasant. In the final episode, he doesn't rush to save Perry. He sort of dawdles and hangs around with Yukanos and... In the middle of that, you've got the trial stuff, which is going on. Um, the trial stuff, the Doctor sees his motivation is as a ruse to try and get the mentor's confidence so he can rescue Perry. But the script and indeed the writer on the commentary very clearly says that no, he was under the influence of the machine. So mm. that's all contradictory. Nicola does give a great performance. It's, it's harrowing, but it is really good. Uh, and I do want to single out Brian Blessed, particularly in episode eight. He gives a really powerful performance. There are some silly moments, but when he's really going for touching, he he, he hits the notes so well. Um, the moment where, he, where he's comforting Nicola, the moment when he's mourning Dorf, or, or just where he says goodbye to Nicola. They're really lovely moments. But no, I'm sorry, if you, sorry to fans of Mindorp out there, but even at one a week, this was unpleasant. I'm looking forward to Vervoids. Oh, and say so you should. I mean, I watched that recently. I, I think Vervoids is a terrific little story. You know, it gets slated uh, unjustly, I think. But uh, just on Brian Blessed, too, and I think you might have made this comment on uh, Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, plug, plug, um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> on the recent episode that he was on. 
he is quite an actor and although you know he might go into flash gordon mode uh, and just be shouty he can actually act when he wants to and he's very good at it yeah as we mentioned when we were talking about the his performance in cygnus alpha on blake seven when he was augustus in our claudius in 1974 76 something like that he was considered by a lot of people as being the best actor on English television at the time. Mm. And when you watch those episodes of I, Claudius, you can see why. Oh, with, with, without doubt. Um, and that, that's a series I recently bought on uh, Blu-ray. Oh, excellent. Mm, so, yeah. look, try watch. I'm into week nine, and uh, I've still got six to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in, you're in for some relief with the next story. I can say that much. I think so, I think so. Okay, couple of quick things from me because I know people are probably itching to hear about our Doctor Who guilty pleasures. Don't worry, people, they're coming up. Um, I wanted to mention the, the the Doctor Who logo again. We spoke about this on the last episode and saying, you know, a lot of stuff is getting branded with the new, what we'll call the Jodie Whittaker logo, even like the new series of Tom Baker uh, on Blu-ray is getting the Jodie Whittaker logo on it. And now it seems the final hurdle has been uh, leapt over. Big finish is giving up that Pertwee slash McGann type logo, and they're going to start using the Whitaker logo as well. So this logo has become absolutely ubiquitous in a way that Doctor Who logos since New Who started haven't been. That's really interesting. I wonder what the final motivation for Big Finish was in doing that. I don't know. I, I don't know whether they're being told to. Like, you know, you, you have the license. This is the logo you must use now. I, I don't know whether this is like a Chibnall thing, whether he wants the logo of his show to be on absolutely everything or whether the BBC's just changed their mind. Because up until now, the, the new logo has been on a lot of things. It might be on the new toys. It might be on Doctor Who magazine. Yes. But Big Finish has used the McGann Pertwee logo and, and other products have used the classic logo here and there. It hasn't been as uniform form as ubiquitous as this but it really is ubiquitous now well there you go i will uh, no doubt see it around <laughs> and finally i just want to mention um i've talked in the past about the myth makers uh series called the doctors where they've bundled together all those old myth makers videos onto dvd i recently bought the hartnell and the tom baker uh versions so i now have doctors one through four covered by these uh dvds and there is a mccoy one that's out there as well so doctors one through four and seven are now catered for have you picked any of these up yet dave i haven't they're on my to-do list and it may be something for winter or something when i've got a bit of time up my sleeve but no i haven't yet yeah i mean i must confess i haven't actually played either the hartnell or the tom baker ones yet but they're on the shelf probably for winter as well you're quite right excellent well time for the main event yes so what we're going to talk about now is we're going to nominate between us some stories that we are calling guilty pleasures so that is stories that are generally lowly ranked or lowly considered by fandom and we're using the DWM poll to sort of calculate that or, or, or give a, a metric to. Uh, but th- these are stories not just that we sort of can defend, but that we really actually enjoy. So, like, I can defend the sensor rights, but I'm not going to put the sensor rights on to watch for fun mm. that often. It, it has come out, but, you know, there's a difference between that and putting something on because you genuinely enjoy it. So... We have got stories that are all sort of in the bottom 50, not less than that even, the bottom 40 of the DWM poll. Mm-hmm. And we're going to work through them from the uh, highest ranked right down to the lowest ranked. 
And the first one is from Europe. It mm-hmm. came in at 175. Now, I know your numbers, but I don't know what stories they correspond to. So <laughs> what's 175, Rob? 175, Dave, is The Chase. Interesting. Now, I would have picked that, but I didn't realise it was ranked so lowly. I thought people would learn to love The Chase. No, no. My my gut feeling in fandom throughout the years has been it's never been that well regarded. And when I looked at it in the poll and saw it down there at 175, I thought, yep, that's got to be my first guilty pleasure for this episode. Yeah, look, I know why I love it, but why do you love it? Dave, I adore this. You know, there are many classic Who serials, and you'll probably disagree here, but that I feel are quite leaden to a modern viewer. Um, Obviously, because they're meant to be watched once and only once a week. And nowadays, you try and watch them like a modern serial. They don't always flow so well. They sometimes feel padded. They sometimes feel like they're repeating themselves. They're using limited sets. But this doesn't. This leaps from location to location to location, you know, episode to episode. It's got Daleks. It's absolutely bonkers. And it's fun. And, you know, I think the two big black marks against its name are probably, number one, it's not Daleks' master plan. And two, it gets bagged a lot for the humour in it. You know, it's quite funny. The Dalek comes out of the sand and coughs. Um, <laughs> well, you know. it's, it's got that that wonderful, stupid Dalek, like, how long till we arrive? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, and I think the humour makes it. I think, you know, classic black and white stories don't always lend themselves to being overly serious, po-faced epics. And this has more of a kind of a comic book feel, which makes it very palatable to, to me, at least. You know, and I find it odd, actually, that some humorous stories get praised, like the Romans. The Romans is humorous. That gets praised. Mm, But mm. this is humorous. People go, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Oh, terrible. And I I think, no, I I bloody love this. This is fantastic. I'm I'm totally with you. Look, if, if I was ranking my best Dalek stories, it would be a lot further down than anything else in the 60s that that's okay okay that's fair yeah but to while away a couple of hours with a lot of fun with vicky and the doctor and barbara and ian and some daleks yeah bring it on yeah so the chase for me dave that's my number number one all right well the next one is one of mine it's came in at 192 and it's another terry nation story the keys of marinus oh that's a good one (laughs) this is doctor who i think at its most brilliant it is so imaginative it is exploring a planet you get wonderful science fantasy with the morpho brains you get that drama with the jungle you get the stuff on the ice tunnels you know really memorable stuff with the ice tunnels and vasor you get courtroom drama in the city of millennius you've got the vord uh just so many good things hartnell's at his best um in fact all the regulars get something to do here and yeah it's just so much fun again so many sets but it's just so imaginative and interesting and for you know this is only what the fifth sixth story fifth i think story Mm. it's i love it so much and look it's six parts it's a 60 story but i can watch this in one sitting very happily can i draw a parallel with the chase that this moves around quite a lot and keeps things interesting yes you know, obviously it's not going from planet to planet and, and so on and through time, but, you know, it, it's still moving around a lot. It's not static. No, I agree. I think that they're both really good examples of 60s Doctor Who, particularly Hartnell Doctor Who. We're jumping forward in time a lot, though, because the next one's one of mine as well. It came mm-hmm. in at 195. Yeah. 
It's the Idiot's Lantern. Ooh, okay. Now, this was just bagged when it came out. It was low in season polls at the time, and it seems to have been low for a long time afterwards. It's a Gator story, and it's almost always put in people's um, lists of bad Gators, because everyone has a list of good Gators and bad Gators. <laughs> yes. And this almost always seems to be in the bad Gators pile, and I don't know why. It's got wonderful characters. It's got a wonderful setting, like 1950s Coronation Britain. Lovely setting. Uh, Rose can't speak. That's a big bonus. Because <laughs> yes. we are in series two now, so yeah. Uh, the, the, the alien idea is really interesting, really well realised. It's got wonderful little nostalgic references, uh, like like the way that the aliens broadcast is, you know, that old broadcast symbol from the BBC. And, and the character of... Um, Tommy, I think it is, is really, really well done and well acted. I, I love this episode when it came out, and I still do, and I genuinely don't know why people don't like this one. I can realise why people don't like The Chase, for example, because you're right, they're very, oh, it's Daleks and it's silly, it should be whatever. I don't know why people don't like this one, Rob. Honestly, uh, The Idiot's Lantern doesn't fully land for me. I like, do they call the enemy, is, is she The Wire? That's right, yeah. You know, are, are you sitting carefully, children? You know, and all this, you know? Yeah. Uh, are you listening? Yeah. It, it is scary. It is interesting. It just didn't quite land for me. I don't know whether the, the Doctor and Rose are being too smug on that moped at the start and it just put me off. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But Rose is sidelined. So, look, maybe give this one another go if some of you haven't watched it since broadcast because I really like it. It's been a while for me. Maybe I should. Yeah. Uh, the next year's one of yours, Rob. It came in at 197. Yes, let me refer to my list. Okay, 197, Dave, is the Celestial Toymaker. Ooh, interesting. Mm. Now, I'll say up front that the Target novel goes a long way to making this a guilty pleasure for me. Um, mm-hmm. I read it before I saw, well, the only remaining episode uh, of this uh, story sometime in the late 80s. I think the book came out late 86, early 87. I just love this idea of this being who's immortal and scary and wants to play games, you know, like this. And I think, like The Chase, this is very comic strip to me. I think it's fun. And, okay, I'm going to go there. I know some people get uptight and some people get very uptight about the whole celestial thing. And it's a white guy riffing on an Asian theme and he's wearing the costume and and stuff. But that was never important to me as a kid. I never saw that. To me, it was just Mm. this mad immortal who wants to play deadly games and he dresses up in fancy dress. and, And that's it. You know, I never saw it as problematic. And it's a shame that maybe stories like this and Talons of Wang Chiang and some others are getting these reputations with people in the modern day and perhaps being overlooked or heavily criticised before people even look at them and it misses that there's an interesting premise and a really good story going on to my mind I, I love the Celestial Toy Maker. I'm very fond of it when I was very very young like 8-9 years old I had an audio copy of episode 4 and that just blew my mind and yeah. I wanted to know what it looked like I read the Target novel again that blew my mind I saw episode four. I think it looks really, really good. And particularly as a kid, it really captures the imagination, like you say. Um, I've since heard the audio a couple of times. The first three parts are very variable. Uh, part three especially, I think, really lets it down, which is the Hunt the Key uh, mm. episode, which is sort of a lot of dancing looking for a key. And that's not too great. Hartnell's not in it much, which is a shame. But yeah, my memory of it 
is a very very fond one, and yeah. and and certainly look, I I understand why people find the uh, uh, the yellow face. Well, it's not really yellow face, is it? It's I don't know. I, I get why people are, are upset about that, and that's that's fine. I think it's far less a problem than uh, the anti-Semitism in Creature from the Pit. Let me say that. Mm. I think it's far less on the scale, but I get it. But no, I have really fond memories of the Celestial Toymaker. I'm glad you put this on the list. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, I've got a few now. There's a run of mine and a run of yours. Okay. My next one is 199, and it's Colony in Space. Ooh. That, that's very low for that story. It's very low for that story. This, again, to me, is really good Doctor Who. The Doctor goes to an alien planet, and it's a genuinely alien planet with alien culture and an alien civilization and a history behind it. You meet these colonists who are this wonderful idea of people wanting to start a new and better life outside of the polluted Earth, and they're wonderful characters. IMC comes in, they're great characters. The guy who plays Captain Dead, wow, what mm. a villain, what a villain. And it, it all just sort of works, and then the Master turns up and takes things to another level, and you get Asher's sacrifice at the end. And look, okay, I appreciate that it is six parts, it's dragged out and it looks drab. I think the worst thing about it is that the earth tones that they use for the costumes and the sets, uh, it's a logical thing to do, to use earth tones, but I get that it does make it look quite drab. But I, I don't care. Again, I can put this on and watch it and really enjoy it because it's Mac Hulk's characters and Malcolm Hulk's ideas and script. And that's always worth watching. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised. I, I wouldn't expect this to crack the top 100, say, but at the same time, I don't expect it to be languishing down near 200. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really disappointed. This is another one that uh, I think... I think it's starting to get a bit of a reassessment, but maybe not, not enough yet. Hmm. The next one is 205, which is another of mine, and we're back to New Who now. Yeah. It's The Long Game. Oh, well, okay. I, I'm very interested to hear what you're going to say about this, because it's not one I'm fond of. Well, this is the thing. Again, I didn't realise how badly this went down in fandom. Because, as I've said before, the first three episodes of New Who, you know, I liked Rose, the others were okay. Then you had the Slovene one, and I was like, oh, is this the series for me? And then you had Dalek, and Dalek was great, and suddenly I bought into this show. Mm. Then it followed straight into the long game. And I enjoy that as well. Again, the Doctor's in this weird futuristic society. It's interesting. It's imaginative. It's got good ideas. The characters are interesting. Um, it's got um, Simon Pegg as the editor. Like, like Simon Pegg. <laughs> you know, he, he gives a good performance. It's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not Dalek and it's not The Empty Child or um, Bad Wolf. That's fine. There's a lot to love in here. And I must admit, I really like the character of Adam. I think he's a really interesting character to have in Doctor Who. The, the person who goes into the TARDIS and does seek to exploit it. That's interesting. And I really like the actor who played him. Uh, so, mm. I, again, I'm I'm not sure why this wasn't popular. I guess Simon Pegg's acting in a way people maybe didn't expect him to act. I, I don't know. It just kind of fell flat for me at the time. And it's never really got up there although i do like that when we get to the final episodes of that series there is a callback and they're on the same station again yeah i don't know whether it's just a very simple story among some much more interesting ones in a season so it looks uh it looks less interesting by comparison but i think as a standalone it really works hmm. okay I, I i can't go with you on that one but i i do appreciate why you like it that's okay 
the next one in my run is a story that topped the season poll everywhere when it first came out. Yeah. And he's now languishing at 215. Good grief. Dragonfire. <gasps> is that that low? It is that low. I I was genuinely shocked. This didn't even come into my mind. When I was brainstorming, you know, what sort of stories might I have on the list, I didn't have Dragonfire there because I thought that would be... No one dislikes Dragonfire. And then when I was looking through to find out where some of these stories were placed and I saw Dragonfire at 215, I thought, right, that's going on the list. <laughs> It's, yeah, good call. It's a good, fun adventure. It it blew my mind when I was about eight. Everyone yeah. loved it when it came out. It was, you know, as I say, it topped season polls in Britain and in Australia. Sabalom Glitz is great in it. Uh, you've got uh, the woman who plays Belaz uh, um, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, whose mm-hmm. name escapes me, but she's really good. She gets some great scenes. There's the scene with her and the Doctor on the Nosferatu where he's just saying, you know, I'm sorry, but you've made your call and you have to live with this. That's a really dark and wonderful scene. Kane Edward Peel is great. It looks big. It's mm. It's got an alien homage. Look, I get this isn't classic and there's a lot of Ben and McCoy to come, but this is a fun Doctor Who story. And the introduction of Ace. And the introduction of Ace. And, and Mel in one of her better stories. I think it's... Toss up between this and Delta and the Bannerman as to whether where, which which is Mel's best story. She's really good in this. Um, I think pairing Bonnie with Sophie really really worked. I I can put this three parter on and very happily while away seventy five minutes. Yeah, good call. I, I can get behind that one. Excellent. Well, we've now got three of yours, Rob. Ooh. Starting with two seventeen. Two seventeen, Dave, and we've uh, we've just mentioned it. It's Delta and the Bannerman. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Justify that to me, Rob. There are bits of this story, Dave, that I watched today, and it's so cringy and odd. <laughs> I can imagine a modern viewer coming to this, and they are going to flip the F out. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw this as a 12-year-old, Dave. I saw this 31 years ago. So the first imprint on my mind that it was fun, it was of its time, and it was so much better than the previous seasons of Colin. And it was even better than, say, Time and the Rani, which was in the same season. Mm. So this sticks in my mind for those reasons. But having said that, I look at it now, and it's still just so fun. And here we go. Three out of three stories I've mentioned so far, I've said they're comic booky. This is very comic booky. This is very graphic novel to me. This is like something out of a 2000 AD strip, especially the landing pad with the bus at the start. <laughs> it feels big. It feels sci-fi. It feels authentic. And it's only just a little small scene in the overall story, but it made the Doctor Who universe feel really big and interesting again. It was like it was like a strip from Doctor Who magazine. Um, you know, we were all singing Andrew Cartmell's praises by this time in the series back in 87, and... Again, I know this story isn't perfect. I know it has bizarre bits to it. I know Billy starts eating the raw jelly and he turns green and they fly off into space and it's just, you know... <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know... Bizarre. <laughs> who were the Bannermen and what were they doing? It's, it's a really strange story. I wouldn't have it on my list. It's not a story I'm going to pull out. I'll be honest with you. But I, I have learned to appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real guilty pleasure for me. Yeah, that's that's that really is a, a guilty pleasure, I think. But I love that you love it. Mm. Down one spot at two eighteen. Yes, and we're getting into some Davo now. 
<laughs> a Davo at 218. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. There's a Davo even lower down. Um, <laughs> four to Doomsday, Dave. Um... Now, this gets so bagged, but I love it. And I think we've discussed this before on the show. So apologies to people who've made me make this kind of comment on it before. But to me, this is this is a Hartnell story. Mm-hmm. You have a curious doctor. You have this three-person TARDIS team, an alien spaceship. There's bonkers stuff going on. It's so Hartnell to me. And and yes, I get that Tegan's sketching skills are ridiculous. And yes, she knows this specific Aboriginal dialect, which is a crazy stretch because the average Australian knows no Aboriginal, let alone a very specific dialect <laughs> of Aboriginal. But put yeah. all of that aside. <laughs> and the storyline seems so Doctor Who to me. And when you have that fan knowledge that this is Davo's first story in front of the cameras, you sort of watch it with that appreciation that this is, you know, this is pure Davo. This is his very earliest take on the role. And I think he does so well. And and I think it's fine. I don't understand why it gets so bagged. I loved it as a kid. It fired my imagination. I will confess, as an adult, I find it very slow. And I find the performances amongst, frankly, all the leads, I've got to say, maybe with the exception of Sarah Sutton, maybe, but I find all the leads just a little off their game. And that makes it a little bit harder to watch for me. That's why I probably wouldn't pull this off the shelf nearly as much. But by the same token, down at 218, that is that is quite a harsh ranking for this. Mm, it's, it's very low. So I, I had to include it. Uh, and the finally in this trilogy of yours... Rob is uh, 220. I might horrify you here, Dave, and uh, maybe I'm even horrifying myself by saying this, but no, damn it, I'm going to say it. It's Love and Monsters. I'm a little bit horrified, but go on, it's your, <laughs> it's your pick, justify it to us, Rob. This is actually my only entry from New Who uh, in all of this uh, discussion we're having, and I don't know whether that that's a good or a bad thing, but to me, this is a story that I seem to watch in a really good frame of mind. Um, when I saw it the first time, and I thought, this is funny. This is this is a piss take. This is doing something really different, and it's a nice diversion from the rest of the series. And I never had any issue with it. I could see why people might, however, have some issue with it. Even as I was watching it for the first time, I was sitting there thinking, oh, people are going to freaking hate this. Oh, they're going to hate that. Oh, my God, they just did that. Oh, this is going to be hated. So I was thinking that even on first watch, but I was enjoying it. And, you know, maybe if I'd watched it in a different frame of mind or maybe in some different format, maybe I could start to sympathize and fall into the um, the other camp. But for what it's worth, that first impression I had remains with me to this day. And I just see it as really fun, even even when they make the oral sex joke at the end. <laughs> You know, which people seem to pull out now and say, oh, they make this oral sex joke. It's terrible. I think, oh, come on. It's funny. No, that's that's all it is. It's entertainment. It's funny. Yeah, I'm not going to buy into this one. I'm sorry, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) It's a story I've really genuinely tried to love. And particularly after a couple of years passed and people were talking about why they liked it and how how they saw it and how it worked for them, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and watch it through their eyes. And I, I... I have, but I just can't. It, it is the sort of humour that really needs to land or it completely flops. And, and for me, it just falls that wrong side. And I'm sorry, it just doesn't work for me. And a lot of it, I think, does come down to the villain. Yeah, uh, look, that that's fair enough. And again, I fully acknowledge that I 
I think I just got up on the right side of bed that day. It just imprinted on me the first time, you know, in the way the uh, the writer intended it to. And there it is. I like it. Others, meanwhile, might have been expecting something else, didn't like it, and have hated it ever since. I think a lot of episodes are like that, maybe. You've just got to see them in the right frame of mind. I'm sure there are people out there who like Rings of Akatan, for example. Yes, I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) The next one's one of my picks. It's a story that I have talked about before, but I couldn't leave it off the list. It came in at 223. And it's the Horns of Nymon. Ooh, Lord Nymon. (laughs) This is genuine guilty pleasure Doctor Who, because I know that it's terrible. (laughs) But I just love watching it anyway. I love the -the over-the-top performances. I love the wit of the script. Uh, You know, all those lovely little Douglas Adams lines and references and the Gravitica Normalizer. And uh, I believe he lives in the power complex. Hmm, That fits. (laughs) <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff it's it's great it's got um giles gibbs kent who's a lovely actor um sadly didn't live much longer than this story who who plays uh seth he's really good in it graham crowden obviously but also to be absolutely serious it has this wonderful third part where romana and how good is lala ward in this yeah where romana goes to crinoth and sees an alien invasion that succeeded in a world that's been destroyed and defeated. And that's really dark and effective and evocative to see that the Nymons, you know, have won and wiped out this planet. Mm. And that, you know, if we don't stop them, that's what's going to happen to Skonos and then the next planet and the next planet. So it has got a bit of dramatic depth to it. But even without that, it's, it's a lot of fun. I can remember going back several years now when my friend Richard and I did a panel at a, at a Doctor Who convention, um, a professional one. We were asked to do some panels for it. And we did one on cliffhangers. We were just showed, you know, here are our top 20 cliffhangers and why we think they're good and what cliffhangers are good for. It was just a chance to show people clips and have a bit of a chat while others are out getting autographs and stuff. Mm. And we finished the panel with our 10 worst cliffhangers, number one of which was part one of the Horns of Nymod, <laughs> where the Doctor sees the asteroid turns to K-9 and says, it's coming right for us, grabs K-9 and just sort of hides under the console. Yeah. It's terrible, (laughs) but everyone in that hall roared with genuine laughter and genuine love, and to me that sums up the horns of Nymon. It's terrible, but it's so much fun to watch. Very good. I think that defines guilty pleasure here. Yeah, I I think so as well. That and and Delta and the Bannerman, I think, are probably our guiltiest so far. (laughs) We've got a couple to go on the list, but before we do, I've got a couple of unranked ones because they've been broadcast since the survey was done. Okay. And I'll I'll mention them both together. It's Forest of the Night and Kill the Moon. Both panned, yes. Both absolutely panned. So I, I felt justified having them on the list, even though they weren't lowly ranked. I'm sure they would be now. Yeah, very fair. I think these are both really enjoyable stories. They both have conceits that if you're not willing to buy into, can destroy the episode. So I get why they're not loved. Mm. But a lot of the stuff on the moon in Kill the Moon, I think is really good. The drama's really good. It looks really good. Okay, the giant space chicken is nonsense, but it's Doctor Who, guys. Deal with it. The Mm. the build-up to that's really good. Forest of the Night, again, the central premise is bonkers, but that is so gorgeously directed and it's so interesting and so well filmed that I just got engrossed in it and trapped in this world. And in the end, I didn't care that it was nonsense. I, I 
I just enjoyed it. So two new Who stories for me that I really enjoyed watching. I didn't think they were classics and was a little shocked to find out how much they were hated when I then went onto the internet half, to, half an hour later. Yeah, yeah, Forest of the Night, the, 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 the sort of magical angle to it really just kills it for me, the way all these trees have grown up so quickly. Okay, that's a bit magical, but then they disappear, that's magical. But then the streets aren't wrecked from where they've grown up through the streets, then mm. the cobble, cobblestones aren't wrecked. I would have maybe liked to have seen some aftermath. Okay, if, if this forest had grown up to protect the earth and bounce the solar flare off it or whatever the heck was going on, okay at least let there be some aftermath and the city's a bit ripped up and you know this pseudo sciencey sort of feel to it that you know something actually happened instead of ping forest appears ping forest disappears everything's back to normal it, it was a little too magical you know i would have liked it to have been a little more sciencey totally agree with you totally understand that but for me the way it was done was just so lovely i didn't care yeah and kill the moon as you say it looks really good when they're up on the moon which is lanzarote uh for yes, people who, yes. who didn't know they're they're on the volcanic uh, land mass of lanzarote and you know they've they've put some sort of filter on the camera to make it look like you know moon rock i guess that all looks really great but it, it just went a bit haywire with for me with you know clara being given the decision of what to do and talking to the whole earth and slapping the doctor is is that the episode with i'll slap you so hard you regenerate as a line oh it could be i, I don't remember it, it could be which just i thought why is that acceptable <laughs> you, know? You, you know the moment that made it for me and the moment that could have destroyed it for me was the moment when they ask earth to make the decision and i remember thinking if if earth says we're going to sacrifice ourselves for this egg creature i'm out of here because let's face it some people might say they'll sacrifice themselves for a creature. They'll be in the minority. Almost no one would turn to the, their loved one next to them and say, I'll sacrifice you for an alien creature. So I thought it was so realistic, but brave for them to take that choice. Mm. That Earth goes, no, sorry, we're, we're picking us over it. And then Clara has to make the decision. It, it worked for me. Look, the last five minutes is absolute nonsense. But overall, I think it is, you know, it's more than its last five minutes. Yeah, oh, look, it is, it is. They they both are, and they got people talking, and they did something different. I can I can appreciate them for that, but I I understand why they're panned because I I tend to pan them myself. <laughs> Fair enough. So we're into our final three picks. There's one from you, one from both of us, and then one from me. So mm-hmm. at two twenty eight, one from you, Rob. And we're back to Davo, Dave. What Davo's at two twenty eight? You'll say, oh, obviously, when I tell you, it's the King's Demons. Oh, obviously. (laughs) Now, this one, of course, gets super panned by people. But for heaven's sake, there's a strong historical theme here, Dave, which is teaching the kids something. You know, I know fans ask, what on earth is is the master trying to achieve? And sure, it's small time stuff. He's not trying to destroy the universe. But he's trying to mess with the foundation of parliamentary democracy, which will still mess with Earth in some ways. I guess I can see an argument for this could have been better as a meddling monk kind of thing to do. I take that on board. But I guess they had to use the master back then because they were putting Anthony Ainley in just about every second story in the Davo era. (laughs) Um, But I I really like the setting. I like the location work, the frankly bizarre chameleon, the scenery chewing my demons. (laughs) And 
<laughs> and the fact this is the big one it's only a two-parter it's one i can feel i can slip on very easily and just get lost in and go oh look it's davo it's my demons it's sword fighting it's chameleon looking bizarre it's it's fine it's a guilty pleasure for me yeah i can see why it would be it's it's not for me i find it just quite dull the, the things you've highlighted though are, are worthy chameleon is interesting you're right, King King John is is you know quite entertaining. We sing in praise of total war. <laughs> uh, yeah, so look, no, look, I I get it. It's not one of mine, but I know Davo has a soft spot for you, so you probably give it some bonus points there. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, again, down at two twenty eight. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty low. <laughs> Even lower. Is one we both picked, 230. Now I can see it in front of me. You can obviously see it in front of you. Yeah, go on. It's Paradise Towers, folks. It is Paradise Towers. This is a story that I can watch and be very entertained because it's got several things going for it. The script is really clever. The idea is really cool. A lot of the actors are really, really good. The costumes are really, really interesting. The sets are really well done. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, one, part four falls apart. Mm -hmm. And two, everybody's in a different story to everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is one, I think it was Gareth Roberts who said once that this is a story that needed those Russell T. Davies style tone meetings where just everybody seems to be doing their own brilliant thing, but no one's talking to anybody else about it. And how do they sort of all been on the same page it would have worked better. So I get its flaws, but I just think it's really clever and fun and entertaining, and I'm, I'm very happy to watch this one. What about you, Rob? You've picked it as well. Yeah. Now, look, in my first few examples when we started this uh, feature, I was saying stuff like, this is comic booky or this is comic strip-like, and I'm going to return to that here. This, to me, is absolutely 2000 AD. You know, you've got the tower block. You've got the weird residence. You've got gangs. You know, all of it. And and sure, I acknowledge that it's done on an 80s children's TV budget and doesn't have the look and feel of, say, the Judge Dredd movie that came out a few years ago with Carl Urban. Yeah. But if I think about what the action's conveying more so than what it looks like, I think this is really strong. Sort of like when you watch a play, for example. Yes. It's it's fake and the sets aren't real and the action's done for the stage and doesn't look like real life, but it's telling you a story. And that's actually how I look at a lot of the classic era, actually. Mm, Um, mm. I look at the ideas behind it all and, and... I almost watched the classic era in some ways like a play um, being acted out. You know, if I can take Paradise Towers on that level and think about what it's actually saying and what it could be like in my imagination, I think, oh, hell, this is great. This is is really quite good. Yeah, the the story and the ideas behind it are really good stuff. And you can start to see Cartwell's influence just slowly coming in here. Mm. And, and you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, I know at the time people really bagged Pex. I think Pex is great. I think he's exactly how he should be. Yeah, this big dumb hero. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy this one. Again, look, there are much better McCoy stories to come, but I don't have a problem with watching this at all. And, you know, it's down, what, in the bottom 11, I think. And that's not deserved. No, no, not at all. And I mean, of course, it's not a story you're going to put on to convince someone that the McCoy era is great. 
But once you're into the McCoy era, I think there's a lot to be dug out of this one. It certainly is one that is much better to watch now, knowing what's McCoy. to come. Yeah, yeah no, not just what's to come, but you know, appreciating McCoy better. I think you take more out of this story as well than yeah, than perhaps we all did when we saw it the first time thirty-one years ago. Could you imagine it with the budget of say the Dread movie? Yeah, yeah, I think with a bit of money and a you know real time, this this could be a real epic. Yeah, yeah, me too. So the last one for the list is one of mine. It came in at two thirty-eight oh. out of a list of two hundred and forty-one. Wow. It is a Colin Baker story. Yes. It is Time Lash. Really? I can put on Time Lash and enjoy myself. A lot of that is to do with Paul Darrow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, But it's just so bonkers and so over the top and so entertaining. The first part of, of the 245 minutes is actually really quite good. It sets up the dystopian world quite effectively. The Borad looks cool. As I say, Paul Darrow is just amazingly good and <laughs> so much fun to watch. Colin's having a good time. Uh, you know, you've got the little HG Wells references. The badges are terrible, but who doesn't love watching those puppets? <laughs> the Doctor has done a brave but foolish thing. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that wonderful exchange between them and Paul Darrow well, it seems diplomacy has failed. Yes, rather like your pathetic planet. <laughs> Who can't yeah. watch that and enjoy themselves? Come on. Yeah. You've reminded me of a few good things about it, actually. Yeah, I should maybe rewatch that. It's been probably a decade. Yeah, give it a go. Look, I again, if you're in the mood where you want to watch really serious drama, then yeah, there are there are far better stories to watch. But, but you know, that rainy day, that... Just pull out a pizza and watch a bit of Doctor Who to have some fun. I think Time Lash is well worthy. Okay, good call. Good call to end on there, I think. Oh, thank you. As I say, we're not claiming that they're classics. We're not claiming that they're great. But we're saying these are fun to watch. And sometimes it's good to just have a guilty pleasure view. Absolutely. And of course, we threw this open to you out there, the listeners, and uh, asked what your guilty pleasures are when it comes to Doctor Who. Most of you replied with stories, but uh, the first one I'll read here, my mate Cameron Riley, who does uh, well many, many podcasts. Uh, Life of Caesar uh, is one of them. Uh, the Renaissance Times is another. He just does so many. Cameron says, admitting I cry when I watch it. That's his guilty pleasure about Doctor Who, Dave. Oh, uh, that's sweet. Yeah, it is, because he is a grown man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have one here from Cammy, who tweets at Cammy79. Everyone hates the twin dilemma, but when I watched it, it wasn't that bad. Cammy, I'm going to three quarters agree with you. When I watch the twin dilemma, I start at episode two, and that makes it a reasonably okay sort of space romp. It's part one that kills that one, I think. Yeah, good call. Our mate Stephen B at Steed Styling. G'day, Steve. He says, any Graham Williams story where Tom Baker is supposedly being too silly. Bring it on, I say. As crap as some of the stories are, script or production-wise, Tom is never less than captivating. A multicoloured whirlwind who is Doctor Who. P.S. That includes Underworld. <laughs> well, you're a brave man there, Steve. But there are some in there that uh, I, I agree with. Not Eden could have possibly made my list. Um... 
There's some fun in there, but it is pretty bad. But no, that's that's good. Uh, one from Graham Applin at Skeptical Husky. He agrees with me here, Rob. He says, Horns of Nymon. It's fun. <laughs> it's kitsch. It's not the greatest cereal ever, but it has a twinkle in its eye, and I certainly prefer it to the rather po-faced stuff which followed it. Look, I really like the po-faced stuff that followed it as well, but twinkle in the eye exactly <laughs> sums up why Horns of Nymon is pleasurable to watch. Good call. Absolutely. Our mate Jeff uh, Waddle, at JeffWaddle68 on Twitter, says, well, hey, he agrees with me, Dave. Delta <laughs> and the Bannerman. <laughs> I know it's rubbish, but it's a gentle story that you can put on and just while away an hour. And this is when McCoy began to change into the brilliant Doctor he became later on. Completely agree, Jeff. Yeah, it's a good call. Gav Wood, or at Wood underscore Gav, there's no such thing as guilty who pleasure. There's not a single story that hasn't got some entertainment value, apart from Terminus. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely played, Gav. Uh, Simon Pittman at Library Player says the TV movie. McGann is a great doctor, great TARDIS interior, and a fairly decent story. And I'm not against the idea of the doctor being half human either. Well, I'm not sure I agree with the last part, but yes, McGann is a great doctor. The TARDIS does look great, and... and the story wasn't that bad. Yeah, I, I can sort of see it. I reckon that there's a really good 60-minute edit of the telemovie that would be really good to watch. Yes. Someone should do that. Get on that, people. Very Pete Lambert at prof underscore quite a mess. <laughs> nominates... One of my favourite Twitter handles. <laughs> they nominate Mark of the Rani is pure who comfort food. It deserves a better reputation. Yeah. Oh, the location filming's quite good in that. Yeah, it's not one of my favourites, I'm sorry. But hey, this is the point. Everybody's, yeah. Everybody enjoys something. Yeah, that's right. David at David's Ideas says, The Web Planet. It's a great adventure with very well-designed costumes and right now my favourite companion combination. I watched it three times the week I got the DVD. Oh, and I'm sorry, but atmospheric density jackets, genius. There's a lot going for The Web Planet. I couldn't put it on my list because I would struggle to pull it out and watch it in one sitting, which I think you need to be able to do if it's a real pleasure. But watch over a couple of sittings. Yeah, there's a lot to commend the web plan, and I agree. Hmm. We've got a simple nomination here from Vaughn Stanger, at Vaughn Stanger. He simply says, The Crotons. There you go. I know a few people who like The Crotons. I was listening to Crinoid Podcast's discussion about The Crotons uh, on my drive home from work today, in fact. And yeah, look, it's uh, got its faults, but it's not bad. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, okay, I can see that. Yeah. Um, Jixter at Jixter two thousand and nine. My guilty pleasure is watching any episode that features the interior of the TARDIS beyond the console room, such as Castrovalva. As a kid, how cool was it when you saw more of the TARDIS? Yeah, I must admit, I I am a sucker for that, and I think when we spoke about Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, I was saying how I was so looking forward to that episode because I love stories that go into the TARDIS. So I, I completely agree with Jixter. I'm not sure they make them guilty pleasure episodes for me, but I do enjoy them. Mm. And we have one via email from our regular correspondent, Mike Solko. Hello, Dave and Rob. Going with your recent tweets, I tried to avoid picking any high-ranking stories as guilty pleasures. Here's a quick list of stories I love despite their flaws. The Rescue. It's easy to dismiss this story, as the story is a bit dull and obvious. Even so, the regulars get some enjoyable character moments, and I love seeing Vicky join the team. I love the rescue. That is a brilliant piece of drama, so totally on board. 
And and it's a quick story to watch too. It is, and it's Hartland is best. It's great. Mm. Mike goes on the chase. Yay! The, <laughs> we all agree with you there, Mike. He says the Beatles, Universal Monsters, Mechanoids, Morton Dill. How can you go wrong with Frankenstein body slamming a Dalek? <laughs> Quite right. The Happiness Patrol. It's a wonderful oh. take on the Doctor overthrowing a government in one night. Some pieces are admittedly rubbish. The pipe people, the go-karts. I wonder if people would have reacted better had the Candyman been more in line with Curry's original idea. Uh, I don't know how low the Happiness Patrol ranked, but I don't think it did all that badly. I think people are really starting to appreciate this one, and rightfully so. I think so. It's an it's an interesting story. Um, as they say on the DVD, and I think as every fan says these days, it's overlit and looks a bit garish. But um, otherwise, it's quite good, I think. Yeah, one day I'm going to do my essay on uh, liberalism and the Happiness Patrol. I think there's a lot to say in this one. But mm. Mike goes on, and it's another of your picks, Rob. He says, Delta and the Bannerman. Woohoo! It's my favourite Who story. This is wow. where my favourite Doctor comes into his own. Mel is never better than in this one. I agree with that. Mel is fantastic in this. Ray's the best companion who never was. Nearly everyone seems to be having a blast making this story, and the joy translates to me as a viewer. It's far from objectively great, but there is charm and magic here that has been lacking for several years. Thanks, Mike. Great summary there, Mike. Some really good picks. And yeah, this this is it. Sometimes it's just that that feel, that warmth, whatever that are. Uh, you know, really, you know, really can make a story. But listeners, I, I challenge you, if there's anything on our list that you've not watched in a very long time, we've piqued your curiosity, just go out and watch it and tweet us or email us and let us know if, you know, maybe you saw the uh, the pleasure in the guilt. Mm, you know, maybe for me, Dave, it's Time Lash. Um, I might give Delton the Bannerman another go. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right, let's, let's regroup and talk about that next month. Okie doke. Now, to close out the show, we've had a, uh, a message from uh, Steve Panozzo, famous uh, cartoonist here in Australia. He contacted me via Facebook Messenger. So this was a, a bit of a, a back and forth between myself and Steve. And he said, Rob, just listening to your latest podcast and your comment about the Sontarans. This is obviously, Dave, our episode on uh, creatures that New Who brought back from the classic series. Uh, Steve says, I largely agree with you, except you didn't consider the Sarah Jane Adventures story the last Sontaran. In that story, they were really well done and quite consistent with the Time Warrior and the Sontaran experiment. Give it a spin. It's on YouTube. He goes on to say, I have to agree regarding the presentation of the Silurians. They could have gone a fair way to remaining consistent with their accepted appearance, but threw out the continuity manual with an almost careless arrogance when designing them. Yeah, that's a few good thoughts from Steve there and the, the Sarah Jane Adventures I've watched more than you I think Rob I've watched maybe a dozen episodes but yeah maybe sometime I need to go back and watch a few more I think I, I really really should yeah I watched that Death of the Doctor and I thought okay I can see how this is a kids show I can see how it's not Doctor Who but hey this isn't bad maybe I should just go and buy the DVDs and just watch the whole thing Oh, as a kid show, it is absolutely brilliant. I have huge respect for it, don't get me wrong. Mm. Uh, It's just that I'm not a kid, so sort of watching it back to back to back, I've kind of struggled with. But tipping into an episode now and then, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, good one. So that's all we've got to chat about Doctor Who-wise. But Rob, as we often ask, have you been watching anything else worth mentioning this month? 
I have been, Dave. Um, based on a challenge from one of my work colleagues who said to me recently, have you ever watched Westworld? And I said, do you mean the classic 1970s film? And she said, no, no, I mean the TV series. <laughs> I said, well, look, here's the thing. I've known about Westworld when they were still making it, and it's a series I said I would always watch. I said, I still haven't watched it. And she said to me, well, you know, series two is about to start. And I said, oh, geez, okay. So I bought the DVDs, and last weekend I shotgunned through all ten episodes of, of series one. Um, and then literally launched on the Monday night here in Australia this past Monday night into the first episode of Series 2. And I really enjoy it. That first series was very psychological, very interesting. It reminded me of Battlestar Galactica in some ways where, you know, you're talking about, you know, artificial life and uh, is it is it real or not? Is it sentient and so on? Um, this second series has started off very violent and maybe there'll be a lot more um, fighting and battles in it, but hopefully it'll go back to some psychological sort of pieces as well. I'm, I'm really quite enamoured with Westworld at the moment. I've heard a lot of good stuff about it. I, I haven't seen it and just for no other reason than there's so many series I could see and it hasn't sort of you know, found its way onto my list. But yeah, hearing good things. Yep. And uh, I'm also watching Harrow on the ABC, which probably any of our overseas listeners will be saying, what the hell are you talking about? It has Yoan Griffith uh, in it, who some people might know as Hornblower from the Hornblower TV series, or he was in the Fantastic Four movies when he went to Hollywood. Um, he's popped out to Australia and made this uh, crime investigation show, a fairly generic crime investigation show, but it is Yoan Griffith in the, uh, in the lead role as Harrow. And I quite enjoy it. I, I love seeing him getting around Brisbane in this beat-up old car, investigating mysteries. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Oh, okay. I haven't heard about that one either. either and I live in Australia, so <laughs> there you go. I might have to keep a lookout. Um, I do remember him very fondly in Hornblower. Yeah, I, I wish they'd go back now and make some new Hornblowers where he's, he's much older, you know, maybe an admiral or something. Well, I know from speaking to him personally, Paul McGann is very keen to go back and do them, but... Uh, he had some uh, thoughts about why it hadn't happened, and unfortunately, due to the laws of slander, I can't repeat them on the microphone. Oh, dear. <laughs> but yes, Paul McGann was Mr. Bush, as I recall. He was, he was, yeah. He was very yeah. good in that, yeah. Uh, I've started watching the new Lost in Space. Ooh, now I've seen some very conflicting comments on this. The first season came out all in one go on Netflix. I as much as possible try to avoid binge watching series i think that's the best way to spoil a series so i've been trying to watch one a week for the last few weeks i'm up to the end of episode three i'm not yet sold that it's brilliant but i'm very very engaged and very very intrigued about this world and universe that they're building and i'm i'm, I'm gonna keep going it's nothing like the second and third color season that they did of the tv series it does however have some uh, something of a similar vibe to the original black and white series, which was very different to the later ones. And yeah, I'm interested to see where this is going. Uh, and Dr. Smith is particularly interesting. Okay. Of course, Dr. Smith's uh, now a woman. Yes. Uh, I think played by Parker Posey. Uh, I'll have to take your word for that. Yes. <laughs> Who I remember from films like A Mighty Wind, for example, which is quite a fun film. Uh, yes. and But look, there is a Billy Moomy cameo in there if you look for it. And I, I did get very excited when I saw him. Yeah, no, that's nice. Yeah, look, I've heard such conflicting things about it and having about, oh gosh, I don't know, about 15 or 16 series that I've yet to catch up on of other things. This has really gone way down the list for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just not interested in it at the moment based on what I've been hearing. 
Yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll let you know when I finish it what I think and whether it's worth getting into. Not on TV, but I did see Avengers Infinity War yesterday. Two days before it came out in the US, I have to say. And uh, I've, I've been lording it over my American friends that, well, we just could spoil this movie for you if we wanted to. But Yeah, I think the reason that came about, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously we're about a day ahead of the US to begin with. Yes. But we also dropped it a day early because we had a public holiday on the Wednesday, uh, whereas normally a movie would come out on the Thursday. That's right. So it was Anzac Day on the Wednesday, which is our World War One and, and military memorial holiday for those who are overseas. And legally, the shops can't open until 1pm on Anzac Day because you do all the commemorations in the morning. So there were no midnight screenings of this. So the one thirty session that I went to locally was one of the first ones shown anywhere, like anywhere in the world. That's right. Um, you know, New Zealand, I think, might have been a couple of hours ahead of us, but that's it. And I have never seen my local cinema packed like this, busy like this. I was at the VMAX, which has must have a couple of thousand seats, sold yeah. out. And, and did you like it? Because for me, a lot of these Marvel films just tend to be the same plot over and over and over again from film to film. Uh, look, I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm, I'm not a Marvel comic fan, so, so I sort of take the movies as movies. Some I love, some I think are very tedious. This was very, very good and does an incredibly good job at pulling together 10 years of story arc build-up. And I'll say no more. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm interested in it then. Yeah, and really strongly advise anyone who wants to see it, go and see a session that's going to have a packed cinema because it's one of those movies that is, I think, better appreciated with a big audience. Mm. Okay, good advice. So, Rob, over the next month, we've got a couple of things that we're looking to come out. Mm-hmm. Our main topic for next month is what we're calling Queer in Who. Yes. So, it's well known that uh, what some people call gay content or the gay agenda or just a certain amount of queerness has sort of woven its way around Doctor Who in various ways, particularly over the last 15 years, but really over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a bit of a chat about where that is. Some of it will be, you know, some quite proper, in inverted commas, discussion about, you know, where it comes into the production. And we'll also have some fun, I think, with the content as well as yeah. is appropriate so bit of a different topic if listeners you have thoughts about uh queer content in doctor who please do drop us a line via the uh, usual methods and rob we also do various different specials now and then mm-hmm. and we're very keen to do a couple of specials about doctor who books coming up yes uh because i have a very deep and abiding love for the virgin books so i want to share that with you and the listeners And in return later, you're going to share with me your love of the BBC books. That's right, the Eighth Doctor Adventures. Yeah, so a couple of specials on books coming out over the next couple of months. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to those chats as well. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to our regular monthly episodes, of course. Exactly. So yeah, plenty on the Doctor Who show coming out. And before long, we'll be reviewing the new series, I expect. I've been thinking about that from time to time. You know, I'll be in the shower or just driving to work or, you know, thinking about things and i think gosh it's coming up it's really coming up soon yeah yeah i just hope they don't put it out on a sunday night in the uk because that would be a monday for us and that's really going to ruin our schedule that's that's going to really mess with things uh chibbers keep it on saturday please Please. mate yeah please (laughs) or move it to friday night or something yeah or allow australia to show it first we don't mind either way (laughs) 
<laughs> we really don't. So yeah, hopefully that was a fun discussion. As always, let us know your feedback, but lots to talk about next month. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. We'll speak again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, or names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.